Welcome to Life of the School, episode 12. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I am a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Every episode on Life of the School, I sit down with a fellow life science teacher, and I talk about how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This week, I sit down with Dave Mangus, a biology teacher at uh, Brockton High School. David specifically teaches biotechnology. This year, David was named the Hall at Patriot Place, presented by Raytheon, Massachusetts STEM Teacher of the Year, and the Ron Mardigian Biotechnology Teaching Award from National Association of Biology Teacher. Dave uh, earned his honors in part because he created and leads a four-year non-vocational biotechnology pathway based on his background in research science and his education experience at Ohio Wesleyan University, Indiana University, and UMass Medical School in Worcester. This program utilizes advanced biotechnology in order to help students better understand the principles of biotechnology, molecular biology, and genetics. In the first two years, students explore fundamental biological concepts using engineering perspectives. Third-year students explore chemistry with forensics as the focus, and then seniors complete a original capstone research project. In addition to the biotechnology program, Dave advises two biobuilder teams, biobuilder club teams, an after-school program based on MIT that introduces students to the field of biotechnology. Uh, you can follow Dave and the happenings of the Brockton High School Biotechnology Program on Twitter at Boxer Biotech. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming uh, coming to the home. This is the this is the first in-home interview. Uh, you get to see the the lovely podcasting studio. Uh, nice, nice to be nearby. Yeah, yeah. We I, it's funny because we don't neither of us really teach very close to here. You don't teach anywhere near close to here, uh, but. Um, I had forgotten how close we actually are to one another, um, so it was, it was great. I'm glad you could come over on a lazy Saturday morning uh, <laughs> before we have to do all of our family Saturday stuff. Right. So, so great. Um, so I'm gonna kick off my uh, my my first question here. I, I know we've known each other for quite a long time at, through the BioBuilder, and I know that well, that stuff will come up as we talk. But I'm gonna kick off with my first question. I like to ask everybody, which is, how did you become a science teacher? Um, how did you get into the classroom? Yeah, so I, I blame my kids for that. Um, so I have um, two, two kids, a son and a daughter. Um, and when they were really young, um, I went into their classrooms to do science demonstrations, uh, chemistry um, demonstrations, physics demonstrations. And in doing so, I, I really got bit with the teaching bug. Um, when I was doing those demonstrations, the um, assistant principal at the time got word that um, I was doing these things, and so she started to build um, these math magic days around me, and so they would have the elementary school students do a um, sort of an advanced rotation schedule where they'd go from room to room, <laughs> and um, you do a few of those and get treated like a rock star by these elementary school kids, and yeah. you get excited about um, sharing your love for science with them, um, and so that's sort of how it all started. So that, that brings up, this is sort of a, a common theme I find with people who they go into the classroom and they go in the classroom in sort of one setting um, and then the classroom setting that sort of it caught you, which is this elementary student setting, that's not what you're working in now. You're working in a 
uh, a, a big, like, maybe like colossal is the right word. You work in a colossal yeah. high school. 4,300 students. Yeah, yeah. I. Are you guys still like the biggest high school this side of the Mississippi? I, I don't know if we're the biggest. It's the top two still, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of the, the, old, the old claim they've always said about Brockton. It was like, it, it's, it's a, a particularly unusual school for around here because I teach in a building that uh, hovers around 2,000. We're a little under 2,000, and we're considered giant. You know, we're considered most schools around here uh, in this part of the country. You get 2,000 students in a school, it's considered, you know, a mass of students, and you guys are more than twice us. So how did you take that sort of interest in the elementary and, and find yourself into high school classrooms? Yeah, so even when I was at UMass um, as a research scientist, I spent a lot of time um, mentoring local college students. So either students that were coming to do summer research or mm-hmm. doing um, internships or honors theses, things like that, they would spend time in the lab. And so I was used to um, that sort of mentoring relationship and mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Um, and so I started investigating mm-hmm. um, teaching opportunities. Um, and one of the advantages of a giant school like Brockton is is they have the ability to have a, a diverse faculty. Uh, places that are smaller really have to focus on the core subjects and have less of ability to offer tangential things yeah. like biotechnology. Yeah. So um, this was a real opportunity for me to explore uh, education and, and get into the classroom. Yeah, so you were working at UMass, and then did you apply to any... Uh, formal certificate programs, or how did you get from UMass into Brockton High, or into, I, was Brockton your first school that you taught in? It is, yeah. yeah. So, um, I basically took the teaching test, got my licensure, mm-hmm. uh, preliminary licensure, and then um, Brockton was interested enough that they hired me uh, on a preliminary license, mm-hmm. uh, took a chance on me to, to succeed. And then after the first year there, I started doing um, classwork for the initial license and, nice. and figuring out <laughs> the actual uh, uh, pedagogy that has to go with it. Oh, you've been initiated. Use the word pedagogy in a sentence appropriately, so you are officially a teacher. And no <laughs> I, long- I struggle so much with that word, so <laughs> I can't believe I pronounced it correctly. Yeah, well, it's funny because my wife is, you know, you, you ran to my wife this morning as she was going out for her morning run. Um, she was in the lab this morning. Um, that's what she had already been out and back because she had to do a, a quick time point this morning. Um, so, so it's funny, like the, it's one of those education, like we have so much in common from a science background, but I can throw it around. I throw around the ed- education terms all, all the time. And she's like, what the heck is this word? <laughs> you know, like, does this rubric make any sense? The kids bring home an assignment. I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it. And she's like, what does this mean? And I'm like, well, these are these standards and that's what these numbers mean. Like, I feel like I'm sometimes the translator of educational jargon in my house. Uh, uh <laughs> yeah, it's too bad that we don't do a better job communicating with parents in, yeah. Language that makes more sense to them. Yeah, I think we have to, I think, you know, we have to do a better job first with the kids because <laughs> I think that sometimes um, I, I feel like I, I'm still breaking down sort of that, that jargony terminology down to a language that I can understand so I can, you know, the kids don't, the kids don't care what a rubric is, but every high school kid now can tell you rubric, they can right. throw that word around, but, you know, what does it all mean? So, um, so yeah, so now that you're there and you've talked about this this program or I introduced you in the program, so I'm really curious about this specific biotech program that you do. So, uh, you know, how does this work? Does a student who's like an incoming freshman like enroll in this program? You know, if I'm like a sophomore at Brockton High, can I go like, oh, you know, my friend knows over there in this biotech program, 
you know, what could I, could I go do that? Um, so how do you get kids first into that program? Yeah. So the way we, the way we've got it set up at this point is that, um, in their eighth grade year, uh, in this winter or spring, we have a guidance counselor or a set of guidance counselors that go to the middle school, talk about opportunities at the high school. Mm -hmm. And so the program as it's designed is indeed a pathway. So they do enter in ninth grade and they do come out, um, as graduating seniors um, but um, we don't allow them to enter along the way and so we're in the process of developing electives for those kids that weren't ready mm-hmm. um, at the end of eighth grade to commit to that sort of um, long-term commitment yeah it certainly is a long-term commitment for a ninth grader yeah I have a I, we have an eighth grader who's sitting upstairs and he's a pretty one, but the idea that he at 13 would be able to, you know, hear these options and, and make a decision about how they're going to spend their next four years in high school is a, it's a tough, that's a tough call, I think, for a lot of kids. They're not. Yeah. Um, so it is a pathway and it is themed around biotechnology. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the way we set it up was as an alternative to the traditional way kids would go through their science classes. Mm-hmm. It was wasn't really designed for the super high honors kids. It mm-hmm. wasn't really designed for the super low kids. It was really designed for sort of those college prep advanced mm-hmm. middle of the road kids to give them um, an alternative to um, taking earth science for us and then mm-hmm. uh, biology, chemistry uh, as their only classes. Yeah, And it's it's been good because you know the guidance counselors go in they say okay one of the classes is forensics and they immediately think csi and they get excited (laughs) um and so they get attracted to the program Um, and then we pull a bit of a bait and switch on them and and do some (laughs) traditional science with them too Um, but uh, it is designed as a non-vocational program so they're not really committing to a career either in stem or even in biotechnology but we think those concepts around biology that are changing so rapidly are going to be concepts that every kid needs. And yeah. So it doesn't matter whether or not they're going to be a research scientist or somebody working um, in a lab or whether they're a lawyer or um, CPA or whatever. Yeah. They can still benefit from this information. So it's more viewed as a, uh, a, an alternative thematic approach to their high school science career. Yeah. Um, and so what if I am a kid and I go in there, do you guys have opportunities for, you said non-vocational, but are there, you know, does this open up internships or post-grad placements or that sort of thing? I would imagine that there's a sort of natural flow from that. How does, how does that work? Yeah, there is. Um, the program is young, so we've only had um, one graduating class mm-hmm. completely through the program. So we're still building out those mentoring relationships and those internship relationships. Um, we were lucky enough to have one student spend um, last summer doing um, summer research in the GROW program mm-hmm. at Boston University. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think it's BU, yeah. <laughs> I, I, always, I always get BC and BU confused. Oh, okay. But it was, it was BU. Yeah. Um, and she had a, an excellent research experience. I mean, she was basically doing stuff that I was doing as a graduate student. Yes. Yeah. Totally amazing. Yeah, not surprising now, but yeah, amazing. Um, so you still, so you're building that out. So, so we are. Yeah. Um, so one of the problems um, for us is that we're located in Brockton. Yeah. And that research hub 
really is in the Boston metropolitan area. Yeah, we're just uh, outside. Yeah, we're sort of just outside of that. And Buckton, as as you may well know, is is not a community of wealth. Yeah. And so for our kids, getting outside of Brockton is yeah. often a struggle. So yep. to, to have a commitment to doing research in and around Boston yeah. is a big commitment for them. It, yeah. it can be a struggle. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can. I think about that. You know, the different um, sort of the different barriers for kids. I taught in uh, I taught in Winthrop, and I remember talking to kids in Winthrop. And um, Winthrop is obviously much closer to the city. Uh, you could just walk across, walk over the the bridge into East Boston and get on the T. It's you know a much more, you know city's much more accessible. But just because something's physically accessible doesn't mean that it's mentally and emotionally accessible to kids. Um, you know, I used to take the kids over, and it was like a, a big deal for some of the kids to go into Boston. I was like you can see Boston. Like, you know, you just get out on the water and you can look across and see it. But for some of the kids who are in there, they, they, they were very isolated just because of the world that they lived in. And they, this is, you know, I'm speaking more to some of the kids who struggled, um, in that school. Um, but even when you physically, I, I think if physically anybody looked at the map, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Brockton, you know, Brockton to Boston. That's so close. You know, wouldn't people be able to go back and forth? And there are people, but, um, I think those, mental barriers for kids and, and seeing the horizon is a little bit sometimes of a challenge. Well, and that's one of those equity issues. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of these kids, what they know is doctor, lawyer, nurse. Mm-hmm. Those are the careers that they're exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just having the opportunity to explore ideas in the classroom about you know what other potential career pathways are, yeah. they're really important. And so as part of the STEM program, we've started to overlay guest speakers, yeah. uh, field trips out into the community. So these things really open their eyes in terms of what does a career look like yeah. as opposed to what's just a job. Yeah. And that's really important for those kids because it, it's not what they see every day. Yeah, and for kids who might get excited, but you know, it's it's a big jump. I would think uh, you know programs like maybe Bay Path. I don't know if you've ever talked to the Bay Path folks. Um, you know, they used to be Bay Path Community, but now they're a four-year program. They have a very similar sort of biotech started. That's sort of how they expanded into a four-year school for a student who may come from a background that they may be their first person in the family to go to college. Right. A school like Bay Path might be like that perfect opportunity for a kid like that because um, it could be something that'd be accessible. Um, you right, could, and it's, it, that w- would be a great opportunity for a kid too because there are lots of different jumping off points. Yeah. Right, so you can get certificates and get an associate's degree yeah. and get a, a four-year degree and all of those things are career paths yeah. that will allow kids to, to to make better lives for themselves yeah yeah um i'm also pretty impressed you know you're not right there but um bridgewater state's also not very far from you guys and we do a lot of collaboration with both bridgewater state as well as massasoit community college yeah yeah and uh their their new science facilities are amazing um i don't know if you've been to their new science building the last few years it's it's, it's yeah we've done, i've been there for a couple times the last five years uh since they opened that thing and it's i i'm always wowed by it because i remember what the the buildings used to be like you know <laughs> 20 years ago <laughs> like this didn't look like this when i was applying to colleges uh many years ago so all right um so one of the things that i it's always come up i said we we came past, I want to say it was like four or five years ago, we were sitting in the room together at MIT in a BioBuilder conference the first time, and you were just quietly sitting there, and I was just, you know, <clears throat> popping along, being me, talking, probably incessantly, um, and uh, and then I realized, I was talking about yeast, and then I realized, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, this is the guy who knows like more about yeast than I will <laughs> ever know. Because <laughs> uh, I had been working on a side project with, uh, with that. But um, one of the conversations that we ended up having um, in there, I would start talking to you about lab equipment and sort of struggles that I've had with some of my biotech. And you'd be like, yeah, we have a minus 80. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've got that equ equipment. So I've always been a bit jealous of your equipment every time we sit down to talk because I always think about the limitations I have. I was just talking to my colleague. Um, I have $600 build-your-own thermocyclers uh, that we put together. We have two of them, and one of them last year started to be a little bit on the fritz, and I was thinking about, and I said, yeah, we need a new thermocycler. And he's like, yeah, we could really use a thermocycler. If, you know, I know, like, you know, he's talking 32L or 64. I was like, we're never going to afford that. I'm thinking about getting another, maybe one or two of those $600 jobs. How are we going to do that? So, you know, how did your program build out your labs? How did, you know, did you tap into grants, other funding? How did you build sort of this technology resources that you guys have? Yeah, so it, so it all started with that BioBuilder connection and, and through Natalie Cordell. And so yeah. she, she turned us on to um, grants through the Maths Life Sciences mm -hmm. Center. Um, and so uh, we won a grant through them mm -hmm. for uh, roughly $100,000. And we paired that with Race to the Top money um, four or five years ago yeah. to um, build out and renovate old technology space in our fine arts building. And so what used to be an old welding lab that had been converted into storage for our yeah. print shop um, got turned into this state-of-the-art research lab. Wow. Um, and so that's how it started. Yeah. Um, and from that time on, um, we've been incredibly lucky to, to partner with the Mass Life Sciences Center. Um, they gave us a second... $100,000 grant a couple of years ago. Um, we used that to buy more supplies, yeah. even more equipment to, to build out the program. Um, and then we've supplemented all of that with um, many other smaller grants yeah. from places like um, Biogen. They have a, a small $5,000 grant that they offer every <laughs> year. We use that to buy many one PCR chambers so that we can do what I call real-time electrophoresis. Yeah. Kids can actually watch bands move through the gel yeah. um, while it's happening. And we find that those kinds of things are much more engaging for yeah. kids. Um, so even the, even the small um, $5,000, $1,500 grants can go a real long way to meeting those needs. And yeah. so maybe there's a $500 one out there that <laughs> yeah. will help accident the or maybe you can dream bigger. Yeah. Well, I would, I mean, where we are right now, um, you know, we got through uh, that, that BioTeach grant uh, as well. Gosh, we were one of the, I want to say we were like the third or fourth cohort of schools that they gave their $10,000 grants. And that's how we bought our original gel boxes and our power supplies. Um, that's how we got those. And then, you know, we've picked up money here and there to buy, you know, as I said, the, the, um, the open PCR, uh, thermocyclers that I have. Um, but it's, you know, sort of the way I work, um, is I'm a very much a tip of the spear type person. I'm always going out, finding new things. And, you know, it's, it's a lot like the drug development pipeline, right? You go out and you gotta find out like a million different type of options, but you have to sort of whittle them down to the one or two options that might be translational, to other people as well and might really work. So I've always been one of those people who kind of goes out and tries these different ideas. So one of the things I've been looking for, and I finally have got, um, you know, a really, uh, I have a really excited group of colleagues that are all sort of finally in the same space about our discussion um, 
about inquiry in our school. Mm -hmm. And I think the conversation I've been having for many years, which is we teach biotechnology. Like right now, we're teaching molecular genetics in, in my honors bio class. I, I posted some our practice gels yesterday. Um, Saw those on Twitter. Yeah, I <laughs> posted those up yesterday. Um, and uh, so this is like, that's our sort of intro. And then we do with the GMO Foods Lab. Um, we're going to do the Advotech one this year uh, where the kids bring in food and we grind them up and they're looking for the promoters and the terminators from genetically modified food. And it's great, but we teach those technology tools in our molecular genetics unit. And then we put them in the cabinet and they're done. When in reality, they are research tools. They're not like we teach them in like in a box. And it, it frustrates me because to me, they're essential biology equipment, just like, you know, a microscope is like, yes, we take the microscope out and we look at things during cells. But we do use the microscope at other times of the year. Like we don't use them all the time, but we do use them in a variety of different ways when we're studying different techniques. We do not break the gel boxes out. When we're studying a variety of different techniques, we do not. When we're doing, saying doing a human body, you know, human body, look at protein connections. We do not. When we're doing ecology, run them out. You know, in AP, we do a little bit more, um, but that's just because you know I run <laughs> part of the AP program, and so I, I look for those opportunities. But I think that um, I would like people to, if we had some of the tools like those, the mini PCR um, and the 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 real time uh, gels, those little mini gel boxes that come along with it. Um, so Mini PCR now makes a yeah. version of that. Um, the competitor Mini One or the ones that we've yeah. both of them, uh, fantastic tools. Yeah. So if we can get some of those, um, means updating our equipment. You know, updating some of our equipment. But I, I think that if I, I could do that, we might be able to stop using just the tools in the one box that we're using them in, and maybe start using them at different times of the year. And as we look to sort of next gen science standards and the upcoming change that we're going to have, having students think of the tools um, and the techniques and the skills of biology as being more translational to multiple topics rather than we use this tool with this box, we use this skill at this time when talking about this topic. Um, I think that's sort of a direction I'd like to go with. Right, and so I guess sort of the way that, that we found a way to use those tools uh, more universally throughout mm -hmm. our courses is to theme our courses around engineering. So using synthetic biology, using genetic engineering, teaching kids about biomimicry, and having them learn that the cell is really made up of parts. Yeah. Right. Each pathway is um, made up of a bunch of parts and pieces that mm -hmm. we can use as tools to create something else. And so having them think like engineers from day one mm -hmm helps them understand those pathways <laughs> in the cell. Yeah. Plus, it gets them thinking creatively about how can we um, do things that would help society, yeah. people in general. Yeah, uh, that's a separate conversation about how to get everyone to start thinking about engineering. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's, how, it's how you theme the class. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of people theme biology through evolution. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Yep. Um, but you can also come about it through an engineering perspective and include the evolution in that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, can we build something <laughs> and and move evolution in a specific direction? Yeah, that's. Uh, I know that's a side project we're working on. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, we'll save that for some. Other we'll, we'll save for that for some other time. All right. So um, now that we're uh, maybe I maybe I just opened up the can of worms. So uh, so now that you've got this big giant equipment, you've seen your first cohort go through. Um, what are you looking forward to in the upcoming years? Uh, right. So building out those 
extra opportunities for students really is important to us. So um, continuing to find relevant mentors for kids, mm -hmm. finding those internship relationships are, are really important. But I'm also looking forward to so curriculum's never stagnant. No. <laughs> uh, or it shouldn't be stagnant. Right? We shouldn't be teaching the same thing forever. Yeah. Um, to continually evolving what we are teaching in that pathway. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about is bringing um, hot topics into the lab. And so things like CRISPR mm -hmm. technologies like that that really are so accessible to students. Yeah. Um, that... And, and so powerful and yeah. so cutting edge that they really need to know about those things. And so bringing those things in as hands-on activities, yeah. I think are going to be really key and important. Yeah, I remember, uh, so we do a job chattering program uh, with our, our, our AP students. We send them out. And I want to say it was two years ago that we sent them out. And every kid who came back was like, what's CRISPR? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm like, I, and I had already sort of, it had come across my radar a little bit. You know, it was there, it was, that was just when I was just starting to bubble up. Um, you know, right around two years ago now. And I remember starting to hear about it and reading about it, but it hadn't really exploded yet. But then we send the kids out and they're walking into these labs and like all of the labs, I think, were simultaneously like coming to grips with this technology and hearing about it and they're all trying to incorporate it in. So they all come back and they're like that. I was like, oh, I actually have to really figure out what this means and how to work on it. So um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how how to incorporate that in. Um, I, I'm still struggling with visualizing how that will work with my younger students who, you know, to, what was I doing on Friday? Friday, I, I was really talking about structure of DNA and, you know, the function of DNA. We're just getting into that. And there's a group of students who really struggle with structure and function of DNA. So to then get above that level to talk about them manipulating the DNA in various ways, they really have a hard time in that first year through. You know, it's a pretty abstract concept. If you are just coming to grips with structure and function of DNA in your first year to then talk about that modification of DNA. And we already do it a little bit by saying we're going to take this whole gene thing and put it in. Now you put in this idea of modifying that DNA with this CRISPR technology. And then it, I, I, I still haven't visualized how that works. It's a lot easier with the, the older students where we already talk about, you know, epigenetics and we talk about, um, you know, the, the regulation pathways. And we go into a lot more options in the AP land with, with those. Um, I wonder a lot about you know, how to, how much to open the fire hose on them. Uh, you know, whether or not you just tell the students and there are ways of manipulating DNA the first time they get around. And then when they get a second pass, either an elective or, you know, an AP course, then you get into it more. Like how much do you open those up that in that first pass through? So we open it up really early. Yeah. So instead of um, talking about enzymology, for example, mm -hmm. in terms of catalase or a lab like that, mm -hmm. We talk about it in terms of restriction enzymes. Yeah. And so their exposure to enzymes is <laughs> enzymes that cut DNA. Yeah. And so that just allows us to go right into yeah. um, being able to, hey, we can move this gene around. We can um, <laughs> see that, okay, there's a mutation here. Talk about DNA sequencing. All of those things allow us to get to those advanced concepts. Yeah. Um, so because we're focusing it on that biotech, um, vision um we don't stray as far so they're not as i guess well-rounded yeah. in terms of that sort of classical uh, organismal level um down to um the cellular level as you might have yeah um in a traditional course but 
they see uh, that molecular biology a little more deeply. Yeah, your heavy emphasis and um, sort of the lens. Everything is through the lens of that of a DNA and what goes on in and around DNA. Right. Yeah. Um, so how many people do you, uh, it, it sounds like it is part of a team that you're obviously working with. Right. So like with, you know, how, for example, how many teachers teach the same classes that you teach? Right. So our program now has between freshman to senior year has 260 students in it. Uh-huh. Um, and so we're now up to, I believe it's six faculty members that are teaching at some point within the pathway. Yeah. Um, at this point. Um, I'm the only one that's working with the seniors. Mm -hmm. We have another chemistry teacher who's doing the forensics piece as um, their junior year. Mm -hmm. And then we have one, two, just two of us doing the juniors. And we have three more teachers that are working with the freshmen. Okay. Um, Either for part of the day or all of the day. Okay. Um, So what we've done is we've started as... um, which was basically just me, yeah. and then we've onboarded slowly <laughs> um, other people yeah. to collaborate and and build out the, the program. So do you? Um, so if you and the other chem- and the chemistry teacher who teach those juniors, um, are you guys teaching same stuff? Are you guys aligned in your curriculum, or do you like divide up the year so that he teaches part of it, you teach part of it? So the. The juniors is the only is the only one of the three sorry four years that is a half year class. Oh, okay. All of the others are four year classes. Yeah. And so she has um, those kids for for just half the year. Okay. And then the seniors, um, I get for the full year for them to really develop their projects. Yeah. And uh, so it's I mean it does sound like though there's a lot of coordination year to year. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I have taught it at all <laughs> of those levels except for that that junior level class okay she's she's the only person that's done that class yeah um but i've i've taught the freshmen um <laughs> I've, I've actually um gone through that with um the some of those other teachers to help yeah um, show them how we do it what the topics are really what we are doing is taking that normal biology class that would be um, one year yeah. and splitting it into two years to to really flesh out ideas yeah so that first year, they get um, the first three standards from the old standards. So, okay, yeah. Um, molecules, um, cells. cells, and genetics. Yeah. And then um, in that second year course, we do the anatomy, physiology, the evolution. Ecology. And, and ecology. The ecology. Yeah. Yeah. So, so have you thought about what's going to happen in two years? <laughs> so in building this, yeah. The, those standards are the new standards are similar. Yeah. They'll write the topics haven't really changed that much. Yeah. It's just the goals and the way that we're supposed to. I guess it's the student outcomes that change. Yeah. Right? Can, can they um, think um, creatively with them? Can they um, do higher order thinking with those concepts? Yeah. Can they use those ideas in in a way? involves critical thinking yeah uh, so we've already built that in yeah to our program knowing that yeah um, so but those were coming down the pipeline yeah i to me it's I, i'm still wrapping my head around uh the the next gen although I'm, I'm a lot closer um, i'm in the process of taking actually a class looking at 
the, the science practices and looking at um, performance expe expectations and all of those things as it will apply. And yeah, I finally, I think I'm finally, it's kind of like when Natalie taught me about what engineering was. Like I thought I kind of knew what it was and then I was like blindly going forward for a while. And then I like, I was like, oh no, this is what it means. Like I, you know, you sort of have uh, these these waves of understanding, levels of understanding. Uh, I think we're kind of all going to go through that <laughs> uh, until we see the assessments that come out as a result. Because um, those I find scary. Yeah. Um, although I'm now like I'm starting to visualize what I expect them to be, which maybe is totally like the most dangerous thing I've ever done. But I'm starting to visualize what it. How do you develop an assessment that allows a student to demonstrate an understanding of both the content and the skill? Um, and in Massachusetts, um, for people who are in other states, they also have that third dimension of the cross-cutting concepts, which now that I've learned about them, like I'm a little disappointed that we didn't do. I mean, I'm disappointed from just sort of a like a standards wonk policy thing. I'm not really that upset that I don't have to figure out how to incorporate, incorporate those into my curriculum. But um, I do think that a lot of those values would actually allow us to make connections with curriculum that's not science um, and, and teachers in other parts of the building. Um, so I think that, and also when we do incorporate, if we do go out and, you know, find a lab series that we want to bring in and modify into our, cur our curriculum, you know, five years from now, it's going to have the cross-cutting, uh, concepts that go along with it, along with the science practices. Like they're going to be embedded in every piece of curriculum that's science that's out there. Um, they're already starting to get there, but five years from now, it's just going to be like a complete common language that most science teachers around the country are going to be using uh, just because the number of states have incorporated it. Right. So the idea of students creating models, which yeah. is the sort of the cross-cutting theme through those standards, mm -hmm. um, I struggled with for a really long time. What yeah. do they mean by <laughs> students creating models? And I guess I shouldn't have been so confused by it because as a former research scientist, that's what we do every day, yeah. right? And so... It wasn't until I figured out that they were talking about the same thing yeah. um, that it really made sense to me. Yeah, you you are not alone at all because <laughs> I would say of the you know of the of the practices, the modeling one is the one that I struggle with the most. I think for some reason I I in my mind I thought I have to give them like clay, I have to give them pipe cleaners, I have to physically build um like a physical model. I I was, you know, and of, of all things, I was so concrete about what. A model meant like it could be a mental model i mean like really all of our hypotheses are models like yeah. like our view of the cell is a model our view of of everything our entire view of science is a model it's a temporary best model that we have for everything we look at in science and i actually have started using that language with the kids right it's really just the student being able to explain how things work yeah right yeah in some ways it's also their ability like when we talk about you know analogies you know, a lot of times we use analogies. If a student can, you know, so if you ever use one of those analogy assignments, you know, how is a cell like a city kind of thing, which um, I'm sure you've used at some point. Uh, I don't currently use that, but I've used similar assignments. But anytime you ask students to make an analogy or that sort of thing, that's, that's what it is. It's a model. It's, it's you know, how is this like this? So, um, yeah, it's going to be, it's, I, as I said, I'm pretty, I'm, I, I started from a, a, an extremely skeptical negative space about the next gen, and now I'm, like, extremely optimistic about it. Um, Although I, I do envision some a little bit of messiness about how we're going to get from where we currently are to there. Um, we're not, you know, where I teach is not as, um, we don't have the same kind of lens. We still have that traditional, you know, we teach our 
12 units of honors biology throughout the year. So we go, you know, very sequence. And um, while we've done a lot to break down the barriers between those boxes, between those different units and try to make those connections, um, there still is a bit of compartmentalization of our topics that's, that's still artificial and doesn't exist. And when I look at the new standards and I look at the way you're, you know, the way that there are thematic things that run through them, that those barriers have to become um, much more transparent, much, you know, much lower barriers so that kids are seeing a lot more of a thread through all science, not just even within a year, but between earth science and biology and chemistry and physics. And they can sort of see it as a, a science that goes nine through 12 and they have that fluid. You have a program that does that. Um, trying to do that. Well, <laughs> but, but you're a lot closer in there than I would say I, I currently am in my school where, uh, again, it's not to say that we're not working on it, but I feel like um, there is going to be, there's still some growing pains that are come, come along about, uh, you know, as we work on that process. But I, I'm optimistic about the direction that we're going, that I can sort of see how that vision may help us. Right. One of the things that we've tried to do in designing our program is to make it interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And so how do we partner with English? How do we partner with math? How do we partner with history? And we've done a really good job with the partnering with English. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in that Biotech 2 course, students have to read basically three nonfiction texts mm -hmm. to support their learning. So they read um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, yep. which is great when we talk about model organisms and yeah. um, things like that. And then they also read The Seven Daughters of Eve by Brian Sykes, oh, okay. um, I don't which know talks one. about... Um, human origins oh. and out of Africa and the seven daughters are actually specific to seven women that he's traced uh, mitochondrial ancestry back to um, oh. out of Europe. And so if you look globally, there's I think 33 or 34 women that you can trace back to <laughs> yeah. um, origins. And then the last one is uh, The Missing Microbes by Oh, yeah. Uh, Blazer. Blazer, yeah. Yeah. And so the kids read all of those, to, and that supports their English curriculum, but it also supports their science curriculum yeah. because it allows them to see some of those historical perspectives and um, use those skills that they're learning in English class yeah. in their science class. Oh, so jealous. Yeah. So jealous. I wish I, could, I wish I had that interdisciplinary work. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. That's that's great stuff. Um, wow. All right. So we've talked a lot about the classroom. So when you are not teaching, what is Dave Mangus doing? So when I'm not teaching, uh, so <laughs> I mentioned earlier that I have two kids, and as you probably know, kids take up a lot of your time. Yeah. Um, so um, one is uh, an eighth grader, the other is a junior in high school. Uh -huh. uh, so they have lots of activities that that. I have to support, yeah. although my son just getting his driver's license does take a little bit of that burden off of me, so yeah. that's good. Um, so they're both uh, soccer kids, mm -hmm. so I spend a lot of time watching soccer, <laughs> um, both them and I actually like watching um, high-level soccer, so I watch yeah. some European games. All right. Um, and then I spend um, as much time as I can with my wife, yeah. uh, so we like to do gardening, uh, go, go for walks, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then uh, in the summertime, when we can, we like to get out in boats, so kayaks, canoes, wow. that kind of stuff.
yeah, we're in uh, we're both in Central Mass here, and there's a it's a lot of woods, <laughs> a lot of a lot of waterways, lots of lots around here. We're 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 nicely ensconced in the middle of the woods out here. Yeah, my youngest is a soccer uh, soccer player. We'll, we're starting our indoor season tomorrow, um, so he and he's uh, he's nine, so a little younger. Um, my oldest, uh, they're both actually upstairs right now studying for their karate tests. So very much understand about uh, moving them around. Today is karate test day um, <laughs> for both of them. Um, so yeah, we very similar, very yeah, like moving up levels. Is that yeah, that's the idea. So the uh, the youngest is um, they both do uh, tung sudo, which is a Korean based um, uh, martial art, and um, the youngest is you know he's well behind the the uh, the oldest, and he's going to be I think testing to move up to his green belt. Um, and my oldest is actually um, he is on the path to possibly black belt testing in in June. So he's because he's been doing the karate for many many years and. Um, you know, he went away to black belt camp last summer, and um, and so his his testing is as I said, he's studying now. His testing is getting fairly uh, complicated, fairly challenging as he goes, and um, so he's basically they're going back and reviewing all of the core concepts, and so he has to be able to take any of the tests, the written tests coming up, and then the forms and the sparring and all of the other things, all the other expectations for him are are very very high. So his test is quite long and. And that so this is their, this is their day. We'll be that's what we'll be doing after this. Is uh, uh, my wife and I will be jockeying them back and forth to <laughs> to karate because the youngest tests early and then the later one tests there. But the combined one of them will be testing anywhere from eleven thirty till four o'clock today. Uh, they'll be both in various forms of testing. The younger one's not quite as long, but the the older one will be in testing for more than two and a half hours today. So um, between the written test and the physical test component um, that he has, so. Yeah, they, they, they gets up there. So, um, but just as you're saying, like, we're driving them around, and uh, you know, he, the older one has three karate classes a week, and uh, the younger one will have two, plus soccer. So, <laughs> uh, <Yep. coughs> neither of them can drive. So, uh, <laughs> we'll be we'll be doing that for uh, for many years, but very similar. It's a, it is a it is a nice area though. Um, I don't know if you ever go have done any of the geocaching around here. Uh, My wife did geocaching for a little while. Um, yeah. But- we have it for a while. Yeah. Well, when your kids are a little younger, it would have made a lot more sense. It does. Yeah. When the kid, when, you know, my kids are What's gonna of be an age. What's going to be in box when we find it? Yeah. And how do you find that box and that sort of thing? Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a ton of places around here to, to go and do that. So uh, when you were talking about, you know, getting outside, that's immediately where my head went is walking around the various, you know, we're not, we're not far from the Mid-State Trail or a lot of other great trail systems around here. So great. So, all right. I've asked you a ton of questions. Do you have any questions for me? Um, I have the unfair advantage. I can actually see the questions you wrote, <laughs> which you can't see. Which you can't see. So, but, so. But I do remember what I wrote because I didn't write them too long ago. Um, but I'm afraid it's going to pull us back into to education and oh, that's, science. That's but, fine. No, no, that's good. I want to hear. I, I, so I, I guess um, the first one that I had was. So we've talked a little bit about my background coming from a, a research lab, um, lots of training, many mm-hmm. years there. So. That's one of the things that I really value. Mm-hmm. Those are experiences that I valued when I was there and I think are incredible teaching tools. And so what I'm wondering is um, how you incorporate those into your classes. Yeah. Are there favorite labs you have that really get kids excited? Yeah. So I, you know, my, my experience is very, very different. I mean, I had a little bit of um, lab experience in college and it was transformational for me, um, but... I've sort of, I've worked my way up to that sort of lab experience over the last, you know, 21 years um, as I've been 
you know, in the classroom. So what are my favorite labs right now? Um, uh, sort of in my honors bio class, it's actually funny. It's not my, um, it's not a set lab that we do, um, but my kids are currently working on a project. Um, and so we do a t series of projects. The first project we do is we do a project in quarter one where the kids go out to a local ecosystem um, and in, in Acton, there's like a million trails and a lot, a lot of conservation area and they go out and they, they basically do a research about a local ecosystem, like a deciduous forest or a, a marsh or a bog or a vernal pool or that sort of thing. And they go out and they, they all visit there and they document it and then they do some re um, research and they build a model ecosystem. So, you know, uh, a terrarium, a, a, a mini aquarium, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, Winograffsky columns, you know, all these very, you know, models of those systems. And so we have that as part of it. They document how they build it. They take care of it over a couple of months. And so that's sort of the first project. And then in the, in the second um, quarter, we asked them to use sort of that background research and the experience and the questions. And one of the things that we look at is threats to ecology and that sort of thing. But we give them a few different cues and say, get together with a group and brainstorm out like a research question that you could do based off of your observations and your thoughts. Like what is something that you can investigate and then use one of the potential models. It doesn't have to be the same model you built in quarter one. It could be some, you know, you might've been like, Oh yeah, we were, we built this, you know, vernal pool terrarium and it was kind of boring, but those guys over there built a root chamber and that was kind of cool. And so we want to do a root chamber for our experiment. So it doesn't, they're not narrowed down to just what they did, but they can pick one of them if it relates to their question. And then they design an experiment where they have an independent variable and a dependent variable, and they have like basically a month and a half to design a little mini ecologically focused experiment. And it's like this completely open, giant mess of a project, but I tell the kids 90% of working, 90% oh, of research science is like working out materials and methods. So most of you guys are gonna set this up, and like two weeks from now, you're gonna look at it and everything's gonna be dead, or the data's not going to be right, or you didn't understand what your liquids were, and you're going to have to throw it all out, and you have to start again. And that's okay. You've got enough time to do it. And then you may do that again, and then two weeks later, you might be like, everything's still dead. And so then you might do it again. And at the end of this, you will have gone through it three times, and nothing will have happened. And you will have gotten no data. And you can still write that up and get an A. Um, and so that's currently what the kids are working on, and their their projects are due in, in two weeks now. Um, and just, like, it doesn't take a lot of their time, but it takes a lot of mental error. And they work in groups. So it's not something that, like, it's not like a lab report where a single kid is writing up a five-page. They're building one trifold as a group of, you know, three students. Um, it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of planning and a lot of thought. It's like a lot of mental energy, not a lot of physical busy work, but it's a lot of mental work. And, um, and this past week in particular, as we came back from the Thanksgiving break, it's, an, it's like, really the kid's last gasp effort so as some kids are like hey our experiment worked great we're collecting it and other kids are like yeah we're setting it up again uh, and so like this past week I've had not many but like five or six kids like every day coming either before school or after school or just you know just for a few minutes to set something up or begin class they're pulling things out and they're doing little measurements and they're so it's it's one of those things it's this it's this very independent sort of lab series that they do that we've committed to and it builds up and I and I just love I love the nature of science that are involved in it. So, like, that's sort of my favorite from the honors st standpoint. There's a lot of little activities that I like that we do during the year, but that's, that, of all of the experiments we do, that's that's the one, because it's not something I tell the kids to do. I, you know, give them a lot of there. And then the other thing we did this year, which was really a breakthrough, is that we gave them model systems. So, like, I have a duckweed tank, 
and I have a series of, I have a bag of grass seed and I like, I gave them and said, here are these different things and here are these different tools. I, like I, I sort of, I lowered the, the bar for them to get into the experiment and I gave them some the scaffolding. Yeah. And so we, it's taken us years to figure out the right number of scaffolding. Cause what would happen is we used to do this. And the first time I did it, I was like, I said, you could, if you want, you can do this component. I think I gave them bonus credit if they designed an experiment, sort of a theoretical experiment. Like they told me an experiment. Um, I think that was part of the original experiment was they had to like plan it, but they didn't have to do it. And I said, oh, well, if you actually do the experiment, if you set it up, I'll give you some extra credit on it. You know, not a lot, but I, and so a group of them did that. And they, the groups that were sort of high end, they like, they grabbed onto it. And then we incorporated that in. But for the last two years, we haven't given them quite enough scaffolding. So we've had a lot of, like a lot of projects that don't go anywhere. And so the last couple of years, we've been increasing the scaffolding, providing them with equipment, providing them with ideas, you know, not telling them the variables that they want, but helping them and then doing a lot of conferencing with kids. Um, that's this project and more than anything else, I conference with kids where they come and they say, all right, we're going to add acid um, to our, our plants and see what happens. And I go, OK, what acid? And then they look at me with like this blank stare because they don't know what an acid is. Right. And they're like, OK. And then so then they go, they, they go and I was like, well, so there's different types of acid. And I talk about like the different types. And I'm like, well, what are you trying to model? Are you trying to model acid rain? Are you trying to model, you know, like so they talk to them and then they go, all right, we'll come back. And so they go away and they do some research and then they come back and then they say, all right, we want sulfuric acid. And I go, okay, what concentration? And then they look at me with the blanks there. <laughs> we go through. So there's a lot of like little conferencing. And again, it's because I do it in groups, you know, I'm not, I'm doing this with about 20 different groups of students over a long period of time. We build in days of classes where that's all I'm doing is conferencing with them. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite experiments we do all year long. So uh, that's there. And then with AP, um, probably my favorite thing is my, uh, um, gosh, I don't, I don't know. I love so much of AP. Like I love so many of the AP labs. It's hard to pick. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, this year. Uh, we're doing an artificial selection Arabidopsis lab that we're going to try. Um, so there's an artificial um, selection uh, lab that people do with fast plants where they grow up a generation and they pick traits and they cross them. But we do a model organism project and Arabidopsis is one of our projects. So um, one, of the, one of the biotech companies uses, they call them quick plants, not fast plants. It's a rabbitopsis. So uh, well, I, I found that out on the board. Somebody was complaining um, that they had ordered these seeds and the timing was not working out. And they're like, oh, yeah, that kit, that's a rabbitopsis. It's not the fast plant. So um, so I was like, oh, that's an a rabbitopsis. So we d have ordered that. So we're actually just in the planning stages to start doing that. So um, I'm excited about it, but I don't know how that works. So, so one of the advantages that, that you have yeah. um, over um, a lot of the labs that we do is you're doing macrobiology. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that we often struggle with is how do you get kids excited about things they can't see? Yeah. And that's that's why one of the things that made me prompt yeah. uh, this, this question. Yeah. And so um, we do uh, the genetic origins project mm -hmm. yep. from the Cold Spring Harbor Lab. The barcoding. Yeah, it's sort of barcoding. We pair that with Brian Sykes' Seven mm -hmm. Dollars of Eve book. Yeah. Um, and so what they actually do is they take a little cheek swab, um, isolate the DNA, um, and then we PCR up the mitochondrial yep. stretch. It's yep. about 200 base pairs. And then um, send it off for sequencing, get it back, and they get to figure out then which of the oh, seven a... daughters or 33 daughters that they are. And so... In that case, so that lab is great because it's really engaging for them because it's about them. them. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. It's about them. And so they're learning something about themselves, and it pulls them through. Wow. Um, but 
not not every lab is that way yeah um well that's i think that's the perfect example of you know using those tools in a different curriculum area so like one of the labs that i do in ap um i've talked about it before uh, it's i'm waiting for it to be published right now um is i have this whole microbiome series that i do with my kids where um i have them so we have a human microbiome research project that my AP kids do first, where they I assigned the different groups to different parts of the body, and then they have to break down a scientific paper, um, a journal article about it, and they have to research like the kind of microbes that are found in that part of the body. Um, you know, just a, it's just sort of like a really simple introduction to microbiome. Not that there is such a thing, but sort of a broad spectrum. And then what I do is the the kids then decide they're gonna we're gonna use fruit flies as our model organism, and they're going to feed the fruit flies something to see if they can shift the microbiome of the fruit flies. And you were at the talk I did last year at, MA, at the MABT. Yeah. Um, and so this year, that's what they're going to do. They're, they're going to set that up. And then they raise basically two groups of flies, one that's sort of our wild-type fly that is on regular old you know, food. And then we have another one, which is the food usually enriched with something, like a fruit juice or whatever. They can pick whatever they want. Um, I would not recommend an oil because when I did that, I killed all the flies because the oil gets over their wings and kills them. But then they grow them up. And then from there, then what we do is we pull uh, some of the females out of there, uh, surface sterilize them, grind them up, and then plate them out on differential bacterial plates. And they can actually see, is there a microbiome difference between the um, wild-type flies and the, um, and the, the flies that they have treated? They can also then pluck DNA from that, and then we use um, 16S ribosomal DNA sequences, um, amplify that using PCR, and then we send that off for sequencing, and they can find out the exact type of microbes. They get a fair amount of information if it works from the plates. Uh, the plates actually, the differential bacteria you know, plates are, again, this is platable bacteria, so it's, it's really limited, and we talk a lot about the limitations of the model and that sort of thing. But it, it's, a, it's a fun little thing. It's like, wait a minute, so these flies over here have this huge lactobacillus population, but these ones over here that we grew on this don't have the lactobacillus. Why is there? Is there something about the food that sort of promotes lactobacillus growth versus prevents it? So um, I'm excited about this. This is going to be the second year I've done it with the kids. Last year um, it worked, which I was kind of shocked. <laughs> it worked as well as it did, but I don't think they got really enough to do, like, I don't think they had as clear a research question going in, so I've restructured a little bit so I have a clear research uh, question. So that's sort of a similar idea where we're, I'm really, that's like a really microbiology, you know, yeah. based lab. It's, it, we're really looking at microbiology, but we're using the molecular tools. So like that evolution idea, as you're, I know somebody else who does that lab um, as well. Um, I've never thought about pairing it with a book though, so I'm gonna, I gotta, <laughs> now I gotta t take that idea and see well, if I can try and, that. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do with that, um, Missing Microbes book. Yeah. I went to the NABT conference yeah. uh, uh, last year, and, and we were talking about the microbiome. And so I'm thinking about, okay, how can I teach ecology through yeah. microbiome? Yeah. Because it themes out really well with, with biotechnology stuff. And so that's where I got the idea of using Martin Blazer's book yeah. um, and then trying to pair it with a lab like what you just described. Yeah. The, yeah. The Drosophilus stuff. Yeah, I got it written all up, um, <laughs> so we can definitely could share that. Um, I'm waiting for it to be posted by the AAI. Uh, they were in there editing it this past month, so that was that was good. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear from them. They were they were doing their edits, so it's, I think it's in process now, but uh, uh, it hasn't been posted yet officially. So when I was at NABT, ASM had a, a booth that was really interesting. They were doing microbiome stuff, and so they had pins. Mm -hmm. You had to go through a dichotomous key, basically, mm -hmm. figure out which um, 
microorganism from the microbiome that you would be most related to, and <laughs> they would give you a pin at the end that said that you were yeah. <laughs> this organism. Yeah. Lactobacillus acetobacter. <laughs> cool. All right. Should I give you more opportunity? you have more questions? Do you want to ask me any of the others, or is that good? Do we have time for more? Yeah, we can go. we got a little bit more time. we got to get time to get to the picks, but yeah, it's an open... I can post right. however long a podcast I want. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I believe the second question that I had... Um, had to do more with with science research mm-hmm. and so my question was how does Acton Box Road do science fair yeah and are there specific scaffolds there to help guide student research yeah so we do not have a formal science fair program like some schools do like you know all honors bio students do a science fair or all I like that yeah every single student um, in a full year science class is supposed to be doing some sort of yeah. science fair project. Yeah, and I've done it. I've taught at schools where every honor student does that or every, like, you know, different right. differences. We do not have a system like that. So um, uh, my colleague, uh, Brian Dempsey, um, he runs a summer research science program. Um, so it is a, it's a summer elective course that kids take. Um, he started that up just in the last couple of years. Uh, I think the goal eventually to be make it a elective that we would run during the school year as well. Um, he's sort of building up this idea um, over time. And so he usually has about a dozen or so students who take that class um, every summer. And in there, he sort of does a brief introduction of how to do basic research um, with the idea that those kids, then he then mentors that group of kids through the school year to order to enter into the Mass State Science Fair. A student doesn't have to take that course to do it, and he voluntarily mentors any kid who's interested. But really, our entire science fair pro- process is uh, Brian Dempsey. Like, um, that's, like, that is our system. So one of the other pieces that comes out, because we've added, as I was describing that project that the kids do right now um, with uh, the ecology piece, that project very much is a science fair style project it's the it's that it's that that's baseline initial so we usually talk to the kids about science fairs because those are also freshmen and sophomores in that class Mm -hmm. so we usually use that as a a kickoff point to say look you've now just gone through this if you find this to be exciting you find this to be interesting this you might want to continue on on this pathway down this line and continue on and do that Um, and so that's sort of how we we're now opening the doors in there, but we're we're sort of very open early in our journey of opening that door to the kids. Um, I think we have an appetite for it, but I don't know that anybody has the appetite to do something like a every kid taking a full year course does that. Um, so I, I think we're sort of in between there. Um, it is it's amazing how many kids we've had who've gone on to Intel or Siemens or whatever in spite of the fact that we don't have much of a program, but it is, you mentioned the word equity earlier. It's more or less an equity issue. It, we have, uh, you know, I teach in a fairly, you know, affluent school with a lot of kids of parents who are in STEM fields. Absolutely. And so if this is a kid who has shown some interest and they, the parents paid for them to go to a summer program and they learned a little bit on their own and then mom or dad helped them through it, or would provide them space or provide them mentor, those kids then got those opportunities. Not a complete lack of equity. So I think what Brian is trying to do is he's trying to provide those opportunities for kids who are excited about the idea of science but don't have, you know, the ability to go in with, you know, mom or dad into 
a university lab or an industry yeah. lab and do those types of things. Um, so I, I think that's what he's been working on, and, and that's where in, our, in the infancy of that sort of program, I think um, – you know, we've got a lot of stuff up in the air in terms of our schedule. Like right now, we have a, a still a very traditional eight-period day schedule. I think people, anybody who's listened to this podcast, I have a couple of colleagues who listen to the podcast, I complain about the same things every podcast. We have this very rigid eight-period day schedule. But th- there's a lot of talk that we're moving to something different. And I think we're in a flex of what our schedule is going to look like. And I think two, three years from now, it'll be interesting to see what is our schedule and what are we doing in terms of electives and how are we approaching those things. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if down the line you start seeing us have some alternative pathways through the high school. We have a few electives right now, but for a school of our size, we don't really provide a ton of electives for kids. Um, it's just not part of our culture. We have a very four-year school-driven, um, you know, kids go and they take four years of the standard sciences and they go on and a handful of kids take an extra science, but they're all sort of in pursuit of going to the college, building those transcripts to go to, to college. Um, it'll be interesting to see culturally where we are in a few years and whether or not we start trying some more elective type work and more interdisciplinary work or how do those pieces start to work together. Is there a, a less traditional way of you know, checking off the chemistry box, checking off the biology box, than taking bio you know, as it is? Are there other al- options and alternatives for kids to take things? Um, and a research science class might fit into that. Right. One of the things we've struggled, we meaning me in this case, <laughs> struggles with, with science fair. Um, and I think it's great that all our kids are required to, to do science. Mm-hmm. It teaches them the, the research process. Um, but I sort of feel like if they're doing science fair and they're taking a chemistry class, they ought to do a chemistry project. <laughs> and if they're taking a biotech class, they ought to be doing a biotech project. Yeah. The problem with a biotech project, and even a lot of the chemistry projects, is they're not do it at home kind of experiments, and so finding the time to support that research is really tough. Yeah, especially when um, the the days are short as it is, and yeah. kids have other obligations, and so uh, finding how to do that, yeah, in a, an effective way, is one of the things that I'm struggling with. Yeah, it really, I do believe it should be part of. Um, it, I really do believe it should be part of the core program that we do. So, so let's uh, transition on to picks of the week. Uh, so, Dave, uh, do you have any resources or interesting picks of the week? Yeah. So the the one that I picked was um, an article that I saw on Twitter through the New York Times, which talked about why we don't have very much Neanderthal DNA in <laughs> our our genetic backgrounds. Um, so when it sort of ties back into um, human origins mm-hmm. and, and that project that we, we do at the high school where the kids find their genetic origins. Yep. Um, so out of Africa, we move into Europe. Neanderthals are already there. Um, we have some matings between Neanderthals and humans. Why is it that only 2%, 3% of our DNA is Neanderthal? And it is an interesting article because it, the current research makes it look a lot like a population genetics yeah. argument. The idea that um, Neanderthal genes, um, inferior is the wrong word, but um, more recessive traits because 
Um, they were so inbred because they were living in harsh conditions, not as many of them. Smaller um, population. Smaller population. And so that smaller population with the emigration of people from Africa um, with a stronger gene pool, a lot of those genes then um, get pushed out and you end up with 97% mm-hmm. um, coming out of um, other areas. Neat, neat. You could definitely tie that into the work you're already doing. Um, so, like, with your right. books. So so. That, that, that caught my attention. Um, but it's one of those things where, what do you mean I'm related? <laughs> you're calling me an aunt? Yeah. yeah. That was an interesting tie-in. Interesting insult. Yeah. So, uh, one, of the, one of the things that came across my, uh, my radar this past week um, was uh, from Virology Blog. Um, and uh, I don't know if you ever listened to, like, This Week in Virology or This Week in Microbiology. Um, there's a, pod- a couple of podcasts that they put out there. Very interesting thing. But they were talking about this um, Nature article um, where they are updating uh, the origins of HIV. Um, and where we just, I believe we just passed World AIDS Day um, uh, just recently. But uh, the if you've ever read the book And the Band Played On, I don't know if you've ever read that. Or, I haven't read the book, but I know the story. Yeah, or seen the movie. Uh, there was a great HBO movie on And the Band Played On. Uh, one of the key characters that is in that is um, this uh, French-Canadian uh, stu- uh, airline uh, steward uh, named Gaten Dugas. And uh, they originally, um, Randy Schultz in And the Band Played On, and then again in the movie, they call him Patient Zero in this. Like, he is the person that spread AIDS all over North America. Um, it was a, you know, a good tale, um, and, and it was interesting. Um, but there's been a lot of time, you know, since the, the 80s where people have come out and said... Oh, it's a really tragic story, too, yeah. because he was demonized. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it all turns out to be wrong. Well, and, you know, he certainly was a... Um, he was an unapologetic character. So he went and did interviews at the time. He was very unapologetic for the fact that he may have been spreading um, a virus around. So uh, there certainly was a component of um, defensiveness from him. Um, and he did not come across very good in the press when he had the first person account. But you're absolutely right. Beyond that, he was very much demonized um, as sort of the, the origin of AIDS, which is, you know, was a gross miscalculation at the time. Um, and so an article in Nature came out that basically says Dugas was not AIDS patient zero. And they went back into um, into the blood supply, into the serum samples uh, that they had uh, from the hepatitis B research and some of the other research. And they, uh, they basically pushed back the date of when HIV came to North America to uh, late 60s, early 70s. And then they look at the diversification of HIV in uh, New York City, particularly during the 1970s. So before Gaten Dugas would have been the, the the person who spread it from San Francisco to New York to um, to various places. And so they basically come out direct, directly and say that. There's also an interesting note that's in the, um, the article that says uh, that originally in the first notation that Dugas was called patient O to represent O from outside of the group or outside of, of the cluster. Yeah, yeah uh, that he wasn't part of the sexual cluster, particularly in San Francisco. So he was patient O to stand for outside. And then somehow... It's like a whole... Yeah. It's a whole lot like a zero. Yeah, that may have led to it being called him calling being called patient zero, which is, you know, it's a fascinating uh, story. Um, 
you know, the, in the talk on the the uh, this week in virology that they had, you know, they were they were questioning that a little bit and where it came because they're like, yeah, it looks a lot like an O, it looks like a lot like zero. So they went back there. But um, for me, as somebody who has taught, um, I used to teach uh, and the band played on when I taught bioethics as an elective, um, and something that we do often talk about when we get into evolution and we get into viruses, we talk a lot about HIV and the HIV origin story. Um, you know, Gaten Duga comes up and the band claim comes up, and I have always been somebody because I look at, you know, virology and I look at epidemiology, I've always known that HIV was older than late 1970s. Like, it's pretty abundantly clear if you look at any of the virology evidence, it's much older. It's really interesting to see this in a Nature article where they, they then look and they get the they get a, a really nice picture of how you can definitively show that. Um, there's been a lot of little pieces of evidence along the way. This is a really nice study. Um, and so it tied into a few different things. I shared it with our current bioethics teacher who does and the band played on um, and shared that article so that she could uh, give them a little bit of an update. Because, yes, as you said, Dugas gets very heavily demonized um, in the in the movie. Um, not as much as Bob Gallo uh, <laughs> from uh, the NIH, but... Uh, but yeah, he is certainly in the bad guys list on, in that movie um, in there. So, all right. So uh, thank you for coming and visiting and recording this. My pleasure. <laughs> great com conversation. Yeah, great yes. conversation. All right. Always good talking to you. Yeah, it is good to talk. Uh, we we fortunately get to talk through a variety of different ways. They said you're one of those people who's always wherever I go. I like show <laughs> show up at a conference. Dave's sitting in the room. We, we usually uh, talk mostly through conference calls. Yeah, <laughs> mostly through conference calls. Absolutely. So uh, let me tell you my credits. Uh, the music that is on uh, Life of the School podcast is by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can download this episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any place that uh, podcasts are available. Uh, you can also um, go to lifeoftheschool.org and uh, read show notes for this and all past episodes. You can also leave feedback there, and you can leave feedback for me at lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, all one word on Twitter or at Mr. Matthew tweets. So thank you for joining me. Uh, next episode will come out in late December. Uh, thank you. Thank you.